G'day, and welcome to the season finale of The Writer's Lock, your number one podcast for incredibly niche readings and discussions of Pokemon fan fictions from the Nuzlocke community. As always, I'm your host, Rainy. Halloween is just around the corner, and to celebrate, we're going to be bringing you a trifecta of terrifying tales straight from the Nuzlocke community. So join us as we celebrate the spooky season in style. On a less scary note, later on in the episode, we'll be featuring a special interview with Glance Sherlock, the writer behind Grassadia, which we finished reading in our previous episode. Our first story comes to us from Javier E64, who tells of a trip through an unsettling cavern where the walls are made of mirrors and every step could be a deadly snare. This is the story of The Night of Stalling Wobbuffets. Night of Stalling Wobbuffets by Javier E64. Greetings, fellow trainers. My name is Kendall. I'm a trainer from the Kalos region, and in this spooky night, I was brought here to tell you a story of horror, action, and unexpected twists. So you better bring those tricks, because I have a real treat for all of you. Everything started on a night of October. My journey across the region led me to an intriguing cave located at the end of Route 11. This was Reflection Cave, and it just happened to lead right into the next gym city. If my path of becoming the strongest trainer involves me entering a barely lit cave in the middle of the night without any preparation whatsoever, then that is what I must do. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Things are off to a good start. The first corridors of the cave are surrounded by mirror walls. I was walking with my Fletchender on my side, and both of us were impressed at the sight of such beautiful reflections of ourselves. But... My little Finn was more into exploring than looking at us, and he tried to pull me away from the mirrors in a cute manner. I couldn't help but giggle at my little fire birdie leading me towards the basement ladder. Wait! Don't go any further! We heard a voice nearby our position, a voice that belongs to a shaking Mr. Mime, although the Mr. in the name was a tad inaccurate, as this is a female Mr. Mime. This place is not what it seems, and it's very dangerous. Please, turn around and leave, I beg of you. Nonsense. Duncan woke up from his 16-hour nap and popped out of his freaking Pokeball just to correct this random stranger. Back in my days, the only dangers of a cave were never-ending amounts of Zubats and nothing else. That old Dunsboss might be a veteran fighter, but I swear he can be a real pain sometimes. As I put Duncan back into his Pokeball, I was thinking about the suggestion. I'd really like to follow it and leave, but this is my only way to the city of Shalur, and overcoming life-threatening situations is the task of a Pokemon trainer. So, I just thanked the psychic type for her help, and made my way towards the stairs. Don't you understand? This place can kill you! The Mr. Mime then used her abilities to block our way with invisible walls. I'm sorry, but you left me no choice. She was looking at us with the saddest expression one could think of. I wasn't able to send any of my team after her. Then I realized, this Pokemon was my first encounter of this area. So, as fast as I could, I threw a single quick ball at her. I caught her without any difficulties, without any injuries. She wasn't sent to the PC. Uh, I had a vacant slot on my team. It's better if we don't talk more about it. But I thought it was unfair to catch her by force, so I decided to release her after I was done with the exploring. 
wouldn't be nice of me to just take someone away from their home. And with all that set, my team and I traversed across the cave. The walk went on for a couple of hours, and we didn't run into anything dangerous. Don't get me wrong, I had some tough battles with the local trainers, but nothing to worry about. Heck, the most lethal thing we encountered so far was a small pharisee almost falling near us by accident. The minister mine perhaps was just blowing things out of proportion. It only took us a while longer to reach halfway through the basement floor. Just needed to reach the final stairs and we'd be out of here in no time. If only we knew what we got ourselves into. I was taking a small rest when Finn noticed a Pokemon from afar. A strange looking Pokemon. Not a Carbink, nor a Rog and Roller, not even a Solosis. We'd never encountered this creature before. It had a giant cyan body. Its eyes looked scrunched, and the tail even had a pair of regular-looking eyes. I checked my Pokedex for any information, but I only got the name of this intriguing individual. This was nothing more than a Wobbuffet. I'd heard interesting things about both them and their pre-evolution Wynaught, how these two were one of the strangest Pokemon ever discovered on any region of the world. And yet, seeing one in person felt unreal, it was standing there, doing nothing, staring at us. It was an uncertain feeling just standing next to it, it's both amazing and very awkward. Finn couldn't contain his curiosity and headed towards the psychic type. The Fletchinder did everything to get a reaction, standing on its head, flying around in circles, even flapping his wings near the face, and still nothing. For his one final attempt, my little bird tried to touch the tail. This was a huge mistake, as not only did the Wobbuffet finally react, but he reacted badly. The Pokemon was heading towards us, moving as fast as one with four stubby legs could move. We tried to run away, but something within us prevented us from doing so. We were unable to move, with no clear reason as to why. Our only option left was to battle. I first ordered Finn to use Quick Attack and just see how our opponent handled it, but even when the move landed right on its face, the Wobbuffet took it like nothing. Instead, the blue creature just inflated its massive body and charged back at Finn with the strength of a mighty Tauros. It was hard to understand, my Fletchender didn't hurt him and yet he got hit like a truck. How is this even possible? I had to check my Pokedex for answers. Wobbuffet, the patient Pokemon. It hates light and shock. If attacked, it inflates to build up a Counter-Strike. Well-known user of Counter and Mirror Coat. Of course, that's its form of offense, it can only attack when attacked. But Finn was still injured, he had to retreat, but couldn't return to the Pokeball. Wobbuffet's signature ability is Shadow Tag. It prevents the opponent from either fleeing or switching out. So that's why we couldn't escape. We had to defeat it firsthand. A quick potion heal later, and we were ready with a new strategy. Since using physical moves could be dangerous, we had to attack it from the special side. I commanded Finn to ember as much as possible. And it worked! The move managed to make some damage to the psychic type. Worked so well, in fact, that the web effect got set on fire. It ran away in pain while shouting some kind of call. That call was loud enough to attract more and more Wobbuffets, all with the same strong desire of revenge. The shadow tag wore off, so we had to run while we still had the chance. I managed to hide inside a small room. 
From what I've seen, there are a huge number of those Pokémon searching for me. Oh my goodness, this is so intense, I thought to myself as I calmed down. I needed to get out of the cave immediately, but I had little to no knowledge about its structure. If only there was someone who could guide me. That's when I remembered about one recent catch I had in this area. What on earth? Where am I? Those were the first words that Mr. Mime said when I pulled her out of the Pokeball, just before I explained everything to the psychic type. I told you this place was dangerous, especially because of those Pokemon, and yet you refused to listen. Why should I help you now? She has a point, and I'm very sorry for what I did, but she's technically my Pokemon now, and it's her job to help me in my journey. Alright, I guess it is my job to fix this mess. The Mr. Mime then sat me down for a moment so she could tell me the best way to get through the Wobbuffet without difficulty. Those creatures can be bulky, but they're not that smart. They expect to bounce back attacks based on what you've previously used, and we can all work around that and hit them no problem. And furthermore, they cannot heal themselves in any way. I hope you all understand what I'm trying to say. And I fully understood. The only way out is to defeat the Wobbuffets, once and for all. We managed to set our sights on the cave's exit, but it was guarded by a trio of those psychic types. Finn was already too spent to battle them, so I had to use the rest of my team. Franklin, Peter, Fiona, I choose you. And from their Pokémon's appeared my dearest Brakeson, Pikachu, and Floettes, respectively. Yeah, my team wasn't the strongest one around, but we managed to make it this far with our everlasting bond. I know from the bottom of my heart that I can always count on them. Both Peter and Fiona were up for the fight, but Franklin was scared of those giant blue Pokemon. This wasn't something new for my Firestarter, he was always quite the shy guy, and it just took a few words of encouragement for him to gain some confidence. Using attacks is really risky, so what about hurting them by other means? Franklin lit the little tree branch he always kept in his tails, and surrounded one of the Wobbuffets in a ring of flames. The attack worked incredibly well, as the patient Pokémon had no choice but to be patient, or else would be burned by the fire spin attack, just like its comrade. One down, two more to go. Peter had to paralyze them first with a thunder wave, and Fiona just launched a wish up into the sky. One can never be so sure when it came to these type of Pokémon. But, unlike the first one, these ones weren't about to give up and run just from getting a single status effect. So, now that they're slower than ever, my Pikachu can cause some damage by throwing some Electro Balls directly at the duo. This would definitely seem like a bad idea at first, with the two Psychic types bouncing the Electro Attacks with Miracote, but believe me, everything's just part of my strategy. Just before Peter gets hit, Fiona got next to him and protected them both with a Force Field. My Dynamic Duo completely blocked the attack, although they were hit by the massive forces of impact. And that's where the wish move came into place, as they were instantly healed from any damage they received. The two Wobbuffets realized it was useless to fight against them, so they also retreated. But as that happened, those psychic types shouted, even stronger than the last ones. In a matter of seconds, the ground started to shake, as many steps were heard from the distance. Oh no, more of them are coming! The Mr. Mime realized the big problem they'd have in their hands if they didn't get out of the cave immediately. To the exit, now! We ran like crazy, but we managed to reach the city before we got overwhelmed by the massive army of Wobbuffets. I mean, I always wanted to see a Pokemon Stampede up close, but this was absolutely ridiculous. 
At least we could be thankful that Shalur's light system was enough to keep them all inside the cave. Oh man, that was a close one. I had to recover my breath for a few minutes, it was such an intense experience. But now that I was here, I thought I should follow my end of the bargain. I called out for the Mr. Mime for a Pokeball, thanked her for all the help she'd provided in the cave, and let her go. However, instead of feeling happy for not dealing with our mess anymore, the psychic type felt sad. Her face just screamed she doesn't want to get back in there. I'd probably feel that way as well if I had to deal with giant blue Pokemon all day. I knew it could be a little bit rude, but it's better to try. Listen, you don't have to go back in there if you don't want to. I lowered my hand and offered it to her. My team still has a slot, do you want to travel with us? It just took her a mere minute, but she accepted the handshake. Count me in. Welcome to the team, and welcome to our family. I was so happy to have a new Pokemon that I pulled everyone else out of their Pokeballs. Everyone, it's my absolute honor to introduce our newest member, Michelle the Mr. Mime. Finn, Duncan, Franklin, Peter, and Fiona, they all received Michelle with open arms. And we all went to the Pokemon Center to both celebrate and to spend the night in. Because now that we are in such an iconic city as Shalur, we have a lot of things to do. And that is how my spooky story ends. Though all seems to have ended well, the true horror that is Wobbuffet continues to haunt Nuzlocke's to this day. You never know when it might be your turn to step into its shadow. And now it's time to return one last time to Grassadia. Ever since the start of this season, we've included readings from this incredible story in every episode. Poppy and Zuri have been constants throughout, and we're glad we've had the chance to share their adventures with all of our listeners. To help celebrate our season finale, we've brought on Glant Sherlock, the author of Grassadia, to talk about the story. We'll also be joined by Silverdoe, who read the story for us over the course of the season, and our producer Flop. G'day, it's Rainy here with an extra special deluxe version of our discussion segment. Today I'm here with the author of Grassadia, Glant Sherlock. I'm also joined by a couple of other guests, Flop and Silverdoe. Say hi everyone. G'day. Hi. Hi! Yay! <laughs> I am so excited to be here to talk academically about Pokemon fanfiction. Oh, I am too! Oh, heck yes! <laughs> We've been building all season for this. I'm so excited as well. Yeah. So, today we're going to be interviewing Glance about Grisidia, and we're going to find out some more about the story and her writing process. And when I say interviewing, I mean grilling. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go with our first question. So, Glance, where did the inspiration for Grisidia come from? Oh! boy. So Cressidia is weird because it's kind of like a study in nothing turned out the way I planned. So <laughs> I guess to start just the, the writing style of it being in first person, but then also having the second person element of addressing a specific character. I kind of got that from this book I read called Stolen by Lucy Christopher. It was a girl like addressing her kidnapper and the book was like it was okay but I just really liked that style I never seen that in a book before I'd kind of seen it online every now and then but I, I wanted to try that for myself 
And originally, I knew I wanted to write a story lock for Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon, which were about to release when I was like starting to plan something. And originally, I wanted to have it from the point of view of a Pokemon, and the U was going to be the trainer. And in my mind, I was thinking that it would be Zuri. Zuri was going to be the point of view character, and it was all going to be kind of like um, Agency by 13th. That was kind of a point of inspiration for this one, where it's like the Pokemon kind of reacting to like how the trainer behaves. And like I was playing the playthrough, and I got to Melee Melee Meadow, which I I guess I, I was nuzlocking Ultra Sun blind. I didn't look up anything. I didn't look up the Pokedex or whatever. And my first encounter was a Flabebe. And the sound I made <laughs> when I saw her could shatter glass. Because I love the Flabebe line so freaking much. And I caught her, and I'm like, you're the main character now, get in here. (laughs) Congrats. Just like immediately, (laughs) you're in here, sorry, Zuri, out. And then as I was going, I was just going through the playthrough and trying to like come up with character personalities and that sort of thing. And I was looking at Poppy and Zuri like next to each other in the party, and I was like, ah, shit, they're cute. (laughs) Well, it's a romance now. (laughs) Congrats again. (laughs) Yeah. That's perfect, though. <laughs> She's like, oh no, it's two female Pokemon. They made eye contact. Oh, shut it down, boys. It's a romance. <laughs> Glance, how did it feel to hear your story read out loud? It was so surreal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. It's so weird. And especially like, because Grisidia, I mean, as far as fan fiction in the internet goes, is pretty old. Because I, I started November of 2017 and I kind of wrapped it up in the spring of 2018. So for a fan fiction, that's pretty old. And I hadn't really touched it in a while. And so hearing it after not looking at it for a while was just really weird. It was like, oh, wow, I used to be good at writing. What happened? <laughs> Oh no, that feeling. <laughs> yeah, it was like, I don't know who wrote this, but it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I don't know who did it. I'll find her, hunt her down, get the lasso out. Mm-hmm. But it was also really, really cool, especially like Silver just does Poppy justice like so well. Like she was just the perfect person to read it. Silver, Silver, I know you're there. I love yep. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, thank you, but it was only so good because you wrote so well. well the delivery was really good ah oh, it was amazing silver do you want to say anything about how you decided to read the story i wanted to volunteer for this project and i read Grisidia as my audition piece because i love the story and i had kind of heard that they were thinking about doing it ah uh, yes the nebulous they and since i love this story i just went okay i'll read that and it ended up like it feels like it's a story that fits this format of like an audiobook really well because of that sort of spoken style like it's being addressed to someone and so it feels just like speaking as I'm reading it so that was helpful and that was cool Mm, so I felt really natural to read it yeah Mm, that's great I have to pitch in here if that's okay I've just realized my entire purpose for being and for being present here was to jump in and also corroborate that the second Silver Day sent that audition piece in I was like Fuck, let's go fund it. This is what's happening now, guys. <laughs> I know that I always had Grisidia in mind as something to structure a season around because the chapters themselves are all of like similar length. It's obviously a very finite story and it has such a strong, wonderful ending chapter that it was foremost in my mind to go like, yes, let's make that the backbone. And to hear Silver come in just with such a perfectly matching voice. Good shit. Really good shit. Serendipitously good shit. 
I'm so glad with how it turned out. I have always wondered, because Poppy is rather snotty, at least at the beginning. And I'm like, people say I'm the perfect voice for her. <laughs> what does that say about me and my voice? No, no, no. No, no Silver. <laughs> I know that's not what no, people are saying. No, it's your saying. lilting just, charm. I always had that thought. It's your lilting charm, Dagnabbit. Oh, I feel bad now. I don't. <laughs> no, no, bad. It just, it just made me laugh. I know that wasn't like intended from anyone. All right, let's, let's go to the next question. All right, Glance, were there any changes that you would have made if you had heard it read all out while we were writing? Or, yeah, um... I would have fixed the one glaring continuity error that I noticed in the first episode. <laughs> Oof, oh, no. So in the, I think it's the ninth chapter, I finally kind of go into Poppy's backstory of like how she was born, a little more of how her species works. And in chapter nine, I described that she was born from the flower that she carries around. So kind of like a Thumbelina situation. Hmm. And then I was listening to Silver read the first chapter and I have Poppy say that she was looking around and picked this flower and I was like, oh crap. Oh shit. <laughs> oh, oh yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I messed up big time there. Big F's in the chat for that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can always pretend that she was born from that flower, accidentally left it, then came back and was like, oh, I'll pick this flower. <laughs> now it makes sense. Yay. Yeah, yay. You fixed it. <laughs> retcon, retcon, retcon. Retroactive continuity is continuity, so it counts. Yes. <laughs> it's weird. Like, there are things I kind of wish I had been able to go into, but I know that, like, had I done that, it would have been to, like, the detriment of this particular story because... Felix. The boy. Is such a darling. He sort of got his own lore and whatnot. I think it was when I wrote the extra that you guys... Let's talk about the extra. Yeah, had you have read the extra, I would have been amazed, but I'm, I'm not surprised that you didn't. So the extra, for anyone listening who has not read Gracidia, I refer to it as a fever dream. Where, like, it's Poppy and Felix singing... I won't say I'm in love from Hercules. <laughs> and obviously Poppy is singing Meg's part and Felix is singing like all of the Muse's parts just by himself. And <laughs> it's so ridiculous. And like, as I was coming up with that, I was just thinking of like, what is the most extra possible thing that Felix can do? And I had him do it. And now like in my head, Felix is like this huge character where he's big and bombastic and always wearing like glittery clothes. And he loves Elton John. And he wears ridiculous sunglasses. Epitome of musical theater. <laughs> Yeah, so like had I added anything, it would have been more with Felix, but then that would have just completely derailed the focus altogether. But yeah, I would have just been more Felix, pretty much. I want to tell you a story about that extra before we move on, if that's okay. Yes. I'll go for it. We were in pretty serious conversations about trying to make it happen. Like I kind of... <laughs> I was on the side of, oh no, it's not really something we can do. And then people kept volunteering, like, no, no, let's try it. Let's try it. I'll sing. I'll sing. Oh and I'm God. like, I think I volunteered. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, it was like you, it was CJ, I think Full Mental as well. And I was like, guys, you extra motherfuckers. <laughs> that would have been so funny. I know. It was just like, oh, it was crazy. But it was this whole new set of skills that none of us necessarily had, like in terms of oh, actually setting lot, things to music. Because it's a whole musical number. Yeah. 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 Oh, come on. A chance to, to sing Disney music, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, we did talk pretty seriously about making it happen before ultimately deciding like, mm, perhaps not. Mm -hmm. Season two, maybe. Season two. No, the extra is actually like the end credits scene at the end of this episode. Tune in. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Poppy and Zuri's relationship, were there any surprises along the way with them for you? So, I mean, the relationship itself was kind of a surprise because I did not go into this project thinking it was going to be a romance. And then it just became one. Mm. And I wouldn't say anything, anything surprises because I knew I was kind of challenging myself to write this fic without dialogue. And I feel like that's difficult to have a very complicated romance without dialogue. And so I was trying to just sort of play off of big emotions. And not outside of Poppy, a lot of the characters aren't super complicated. And Zuri herself is kind of a static character because she's just kind of a nice person throughout. And Poppy's the one who changes and reacts to her charm sort of thing. I think having the little love triangle thing with Peaches sort of crept out of the woodwork as I was going. And I think uh, that was due to like an end game thing where I it was the water trial and I had Zuri out because I think she had absorb or whatever and she almost died and I panicked and I threw peaches in and in my head it's like oh he saved her and like wouldn't it be so funny if she was like this hopeless romantic and just fell for him like right then and there but he's actually like a huge asshole so that that kind of came about due to gameplay that's part of the charm of Nuzlocke really isn't it where gameplay just sort of spontaneously informs story in a way like that yeah Oh, you know that feature they added for Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon where you can like take pictures with your Pokemon? I'll say yes, but I honestly never played, but go on. There's like a photo booth. I played with that so much for this run because a lot of <laughs> my personalities for the characters kind of came from the pictures I took in there. And there was one shot that I got on accident of Peaches and he was still a Cottony. And he just looked angry. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm going to make you a jerk. <laughs> Is there a chance that you could ever share those? They're on my DS. I can probably scrounge them up for when this goes live. That would be so cool. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, (laughs) that'd be fun. All right, our next question. Which chapter is your favorite and why versus which chapter was your favorite to write? Uh, I think my favorite chapter is chapter six. I think it's called High Camp. It's the one where Trebs dies. Excuse me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You heard me. (laughs) Well, no, I just, I liked that chapter because it was the first time that Poppy has this, like, guttural reaction because she cared about somebody else. To me, that was, like, really critical to her arc that, like, she... She has a hard time getting close to people, but she was able to get close to Tribs, and then he was the one who, like, he was taken from her, and so now it's her trying to contextualize these feelings and, like, feeling regret of getting close to anyone in the first place. But the thing that really makes it a clincher for me, to go back to Felix, (laughs) because I love him so freaking much, the ending scene where it's kind of like the quiet after the storm, they're all just kind of hanging out in the room at the PC, and it's, it's nighttime, everybody's sleeping except for Poppy, she's, like, fixing her flower. And up until this point, Felix has just kind of been like a doofus and just kind of a lovable idiot. But this is a, like a quiet moment where I have him take up the leader role that Tribs was trying to fill, where he drags himself over to Lola and tucks her into bed. And then he kind of looks around to make sure everybody's okay. And then he goes to like fall asleep by the door as if to like keep watch. And I just really like that moment. I remember that one really vividly as well. It was quite sweet. That's really sweet. Um, One of the things you raised in that chapter, just before you go on to the next question, I really appreciated it as a work in the romance genre that you didn't necessarily use Zuri to demonstrate this, that Tribs was the first one, so that we see that Poppy had character development independent of her love interest. That's something that I think that can be overlooked in works like this a lot, and so I really appreciated seeing it there. Well, thank you. 
And part of what makes that moment at the end with Felix so powerful or meaningful is that earlier in the chapter, Poppy talks about how he's not really filling the leader role as well as he could, Mm -hmm. like when it comes to training and battling. She kind of says like he's trying, but he's not fitting it. And then at the end, you have that moment of him still looking after everyone. Mm -hmm. It's just so sweet. Yeah, like he might not have the same skills, but he does love everybody on the team. And that's kind of what makes him a good leader at the end of the day. Yeah. He's a good boy. (laughs) As far as favorite to write, I'm going to say the last chapter because that's when I got to like show off all my flower knowledge (laughs) and like really hammer in like all like the meanings behind different flowers because I'm always been fascinated by that kind of stuff. Like I just think it's interesting how especially throughout history like flowers are a form of language and I always thought that'd be really fascinating if Poppy put together this bouquet of flowers for Zuri, but it's not just like a regular bouquet of flowers. Like each one holds significance to this journey that they shared together. So each of the uh, the flowers of the bouquet are actually the chapter titles. Yep. So it's like she's giving the entire story to Zuri. I always love that so it's much. It's so sweet. <laughs> Yeah, I can see why that was your favorite chapter, The Ride, then. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. And I went through, I went on so many websites, like, trying to cross-reference, like, the meanings of flowers. Because, like, some people will interpret flower meanings way differently. And so I was trying to find where they overlapped the most and then use that. And then you have English versus, like, Japanese meanings as well for different yep. flowers. So you have that sort of clash as well. Mm-hmm. Shall we go to our next question, then? Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. How did you handle creating a rather haughty and snooty protagonist? (laughs) How likable or not did you want her to be at the start of the story? (laughs) Okay, so here's what's the thing about Poppy. So this goes back into, like, the final product is absolutely nothing the way... (laughs) (laughs) that I wanted anything to go because even after I decided okay it's going to be a romance but then I thought well I'm going to write it kind of like a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale I'm going to use that sort of style and then I go to start writing and then Poppy's little bitch voice just jumps out of the ether (laughs) (laughs) I don't know she just kind of came out of nowhere and I just love writing this sort of petty character and then it just worked really well because she sort of gets her comeuppance as the tale goes on and then she grows as a person so it was for a short story like this it was just really easy to work with that sort of character arc to start her as this like really snotty person (laughs) and then making her like she's not completely nice and kind at the end but she's better that's really good because I mean having a character be completely like well air quotes he fixed Mm -hmm. (laughs) doesn't always feel as satisfying in Poppy's case I think it would actually diminish some of her appeal because like you pointed out she's quite a petty prissy snotty character and it is like viscerally fun to read her (laughs) just yeah like part of her charm is how bitchy she is like I loved writing the insults especially like the insults for peaches like cotton head or cotton trash or something like that there are so many I loved reading them. (laughs) (laughs) They go straight to the heart of human nature in a way. Just that sense of pure enjoyment, seeing someone express these things that in a real world context, not necessarily acceptable to externalize. But here we just see Poppy go all in and it is fabulous. Yeah, well, especially since it's all in her mind and her point of view and it's so in her mind because everything is her thoughts and her and what she's saying. So if she has an opinion of one of the other characters, like that is on full display and she she will not be quiet about it. <laughs> yeah, no need to be diplomatic when it's just your own brain. No. Hey, Flop, yeah. you want to ask the next question? I do. 
Lance, would you be friends with Poppy? Why or why not? And by that, why or why not, I mean yes or heck yes. Oh, okay. Um, I'm going to say <laughs> yes, asterisk. <laughs> so Poppy would be like that really fun person to just get brunch with like once a week and just be really petty for two hours. <laughs> If I were friends with Poppy, that's what I would do. Like, we would do brunch, and we would gossip about whatever the hell. Oh, hell yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely would get French toast with Poppy. Absolutely, French toast. She would totally be able to tell you, like, whether it's worth ordering Eggs Benny at any given brunch spot or not, because, like, you'd know she'd know. <laughs> <laughs> she probably leaves a lot of Yelp reviews of different restaurants. <laughs> oh, my God, and they would all be about how terrible the decor is. Like, not even... <laughs> Just like the ambiance is terrible. Yeah, like five stars. Ambiance is terrible. I hated every second of it. I guess Faith was okay. <laughs> Would go again. <laughs> she seems like one of those very, like, in a way, forthright personalities. So I fall on the side of heck yes, but also asterisk within the like limited scope of like you'd call her up every now and again and she would like boss the life out of you fix your life in the process and like in small doses that'd just be like absolutely Mm -hmm. no she would be like the friend who like if i just needed somebody to give it to me straight and not bullshit with me that's who i would go to yep exactly silver would you be friends with poppy i mean i think in the same context as lance said yes the real question is whether she'd be friends with me. Oof. I didn't even consider that. <laughs> no, I don't want to think about it the other way. Oh no, she'd hate me. But... <laughs> I just assume all my protagonists would hate me. No, Silver, I would say after like listening to the recording, she would like you. Oh, that's good. You captured a good side. She'll like me because like, yeah, I, flattering I enough. voiced her well. <laughs> Uh, all right. Next question. Next question. All right. Oh, actually, we're going back to something that we just talked about. How much did you know about different kinds of flowers before you started writing Grassadia? What did you learn through writing it? And do you like flowers more or less now? Okay. So I've always liked flowers. Even when I was younger, I would always play in my mom's garden because she had a huge garden in our front yard. And I actually majored in plant biology in college. So I knew quite a bit. Horticulture and gardening, though, I'm really bad at it. But I mean, I can't I'm really bad at identifying horticulture plants, but I can tell you in excruciating detail how it photosynthesizes. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) But no, I love flowers. To me, they're like the perfect gift because they're pretty. They can be very personal, especially since everybody kind of has their favorites. Not just like species of flowers, but also color. And also, like, if you want to get really descriptive or really detailed, there's also, you know, the language of flowers, which I explore a lot in Gracidia. So, I don't know. I love flowers. My husband brings me flowers when I'm sad, so that's always nice. Aww. So, what did you learn through writing about flowers, then? I don't know, because I kind of approached this as bringing the knowledge I already had to the table. Sort of thing, like, I use dialogue like stamen and anther, which are all kind of scientific terms. And I I guess one thing that was pretty difficult is I I figured Poppy wouldn't know the name that humans give flowers. And so I have to describe them in language that she would use. There was a scene in the final chapter in particular, wasn't there, that was exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm thinking of it when she was in the flower shop with Lola, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The florists, sorry. <laughs> Although, I guess I will say, one thing I learned about flowers is uh, the fake one, Gracidia. So when I was playing the game, because I think you get the Gracidia flower in the shopping center in Haoloi City. 
Yeah, I think so. You get it pretty early on, and for some reason, I'd never seen that item before in any of my playthroughs. I don't know why. <laughs> I just somehow, it just fell under the radar for me. And so I thought that it was going to be important and specific for this game. And I assumed that like it was going to come into play later. And that's the whole reason why I decided to name the run Gracidia. Because I'm like, ooh, this must be like really important for Ultra Sun and Ultra Moon. <laughs> and then it turns out, no, the item has been around for generations and it's related to Shaman. But I didn't find that out until later. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Big oh, no. yeah. <laughs> That's an understandable mistake though. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked out. Yeah, it did. There are a few items in Sun and Moon and like Ultra Sun, Ultra Moon that are like that as well. Like those touristy things you can buy. I remember snapping up a bunch of them and like the Gracidia and being like, ooh, cool. What thing am I gonna be able to redeem these for later? I always presume random items are for like past Pokemon that have different forms and stuff. Ah. I'm like, oh, this is useless. See, that's smart. <laughs> that's like Pokemon literacy. <laughs> then that means I miss out on stuff when it's actually important. Mm. <laughs> Shall we go to next question? Sure. Yeah, let's go. Okay, there are a lot of scenes where we see or hear Poppy's side of the conversation and get to fill in the blanks regarding the other side of it. Do you know what the other side said at any point? Or um, did you fill in the blanks while listening? I have an idea of what was said. And I really, especially the interactions when Poppy is kind of having a conversation with another character, I try to keep it, I try to keep her responses like natural, but also sort of make it obvious what the other person is saying, especially Zuri. Like, if she said something that made Zuri laugh, I tried to, you know, have Poppy call her out on it and that sort of thing. I guess one scene that comes to mind is going back to chapter 6 when Poppy is upset that Tribs died and Zuri comes over to comfort her. A lot of it is, it's kind of a silent comfort, but also it's Zuri just trying to sort of make a case for Lola and saying how it's not her fault, but also trying to be there for Poppy and sort of heal her heart, using like a pollen puff puff to try to heal her. (laughs) That was so sweet. Yeah. My heart. You could just feel Poppy radiating that affection and then like, you goddamn idiot. (laughs) (laughs) No, I thought like the idea of like using pollen puff to try to heal a broken heart, like that's so freaking ridiculous. Like that has to go in. Oh, it's great. I loved it. Yeah. It's so sweet, Mm -hmm. though. Silva, wasn't there a particular line of dialogue, quote-unquote, that you wanted to ask about? Not exactly. Like, all those moments where, you know, Zuri says something and you sort of have a pause before Poppy replies. I always just... Like, in my head was imagining the sort of thing that she might have said. You do do a good job of giving the general idea of it. So I can tell if she was, like, saying something funny, if she was being kind of sassy, or if she was being really nice, you know. But I always just tried to fill in the blanks a bit. And I wondered, when you were writing it, if you knew exactly what was being said. I'd say for the most part, like, I had a basic idea of what especially Zuri was saying, just because I have to make sure that Poppy is reacting to that. So when Poppy is, like, struggling to admit that she has feelings for Zuri, I would think that, like, Zuri would just take her hand and just pat it and be like, honey, I know, (laughs) sort of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that in that scene. And then the reaction. Such a big reaction. What do you mean you've known? <laughs> <laughs> and then Felix just singing in the bushes. I kind of think he was like singing, like, <laughs> kiss the girl from Little Mermaid. <laughs> Don't be shy. Kiss the girl. <laughs> no, Gracidia is canonically a musical. Poppy just hates all the musical numbers, so she doesn't acknowledge any of them. <laughs> 
I believe it. I do too. The uh, inevitable redux that we do with like added sound effects and stuff. You just hear like MIDI instrumental versions of Disney songs in the background. (laughs) Uh, Let's do our last official question. So a couple times I made myself cry while reading. (laughs) Glance, did you ever make yourself cry by writing? Yes. I'll just say I wrote that question. So that's fine. Let me count the ways that I cried writing this freaking fic. Yeah, I, I'd say, like, the ones where I cried the most was, like, during Tribs, when he died, also uh, when Poppy loses her flower, and then I think the end, mostly because I had wrapped it up and I was just, like, overcome with emotion that the story was over and, like, I had to say goodbye to these characters and that was really sad. Aww. R.I.P. Felix. Yeah. Well, I'll never know the feeling of finishing it. <laughs> <laughs> Just read short stories. It's so nice. Oh, but I don't want to be sad about leaving my characters. Can't leave them if you never write them. (laughs) It must be so overwhelming to finally finish a fic and be like, these characters have come so far. Yeah. Oh, my God. No, it's really like, (gasps) why? (laughs) I even thought, like, I've tossed around the idea of writing a sequel to Presidia, but it would be like... (laughs) <laughs> I was about to say. It would focus on Felix, and it would be a sequel to Residia in the same way that, like, Bartok the Magnificent is a sequel to Anastasia. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Where, like, it focuses on one of the side characters, it has fuck all to do with the first one, and then it just breaks the continuity of the world established like, in the first one. <laughs> Residia 1.5. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was about to say that one of the things I appreciated about Grisidia was how final and satisfying the resolution of the story was. Like, it really did feel like you had said goodbye, we as readers had said goodbye, and we could walk away with this magnificent sense of closure. So I was trying to say when you were thinking of a sequel, like, no, don't. But absolutely, Felix <laughs> oh, the no, Magnificent, like done. A, yeah, it's more like a meme sequel. I don't think it's ever going to happen. <laughs> Just in my head, like, Felix goes off and he has, like, a musical adventure somewhere. <laughs> Just absconds to Canto with Lily. Yeah. Has to teach this sheltered ass kid the power of like musicals. Oh Goes God. to sing in all the gyms. <laughs> <laughs> my Little Mermaid songs in the wind. <laughs> in the water gym. <laughs> Misty will just like, sir, this is a guy. You're <laughs> <laughs> just like the gym attendants, oh, sir, we're going to have to ask you to leave. <laughs> Sabrina just picks him up psychically and <laughs> just tosses him out. Oh, he goes to fight Koga and it's just like, he's already disappeared the second Felix starts yeah. singing. <laughs> yeah, he's like, no, screw this, I'm out. Anyway, so that's the sequel, done and dusted. We got this. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, we figured it out. That's it, that's the sequel. We cracked the code. <laughs> All right, uh, Flop and Silver, did you have any more questions you'd like to ask? Slams my hands on the table. Why was this so good? Who gave you the right? I don't know. (laughs) That's not a question. (laughs) It's a demand. I don't know. I think, like, I don't know. Chrysidia is weird because it was the first story that I went super stylized with and I would read it and I was like, holy shit, I can actually write. Damn. Although even now, like, as I look back and reread some passages, like, the editor in me just wants to just, like, tweak it every now and then. You're the artist who breaks into the museum to keep adding to their finished work. Yes. You're going to do a George Lucas. (laughs) Hey, now. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I figured the flower could be CGI. (laughs) 
Oh my no. Oh, my oh, God. oh Guzma shot first. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he did. That's son of a gun. He did. That masquerade should not be that OP. I sent Tribs out. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, he's a flying type. He'll be fine. Freaking Masquerade, one hit KOs in oh the first goodness. turn. It was stupid. I was so mad. <laughs> and your vengeance was, you know, making you shatteringly sad. Yeah. I'll take my rage out on all my readers by making <laughs> this heartbreaking. Oh, I guess one thing I can talk about, going back to, you know, nothing was how I planned, because... So Poppy's whole arc, especially in the beginning, is that she wants to evolve. She wants to become Florigist, and I kind of made that this sort of religious ascension sort of thing. Like, she takes the evolution very seriously. And in my playthrough, she did evolve into Florigist. Oh! And the original ending that I had planned was... Because I knew playing the game that, like, Poppy wasn't going to be in my final party just for balance reasons. I just had a better coverage with the other teammates, and she was just kind of fairy, and that's it. And I just evolved her, and I was approaching the dragon trial. And my thought was, this is going to be, like, her last hurrah before leaving the team. And in story, she was actually planning on leaving altogether. But then she realizes she loves Zuri, and that's why she stays. And that was going to be the ending. Aww. And then she died <laughs> in the gameplay. <laughs> and, I <laughs> and I just stared at my screen. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me <laughs> she's fucking dead <laughs> i'm so mad that was the closest i ever came to like rage quitting a nuzlocke oh i bet <laughs> oh my god I, I almost thought about doing bullshit claws but i sat down i think i was like mid battle and i just like shut my ds and i just let it sit there for an hour and i was like fuming and trying to be like what the hell can i even do now <laughs> my vision is ruined i thought you were gonna say i shut my ds and i went and tossed the table <laughs> <laughs> I almost did. But then I realized, like, oh, well, I put a lot of emphasis on the flower. I'm like, what if she doesn't die? What if she just loses her flower in some way? And then it turned into, like, this big sacrifice moment where, like, she chooses Zuri over her flower. And that was, like, the culmination of her arc right there. It's the ultimate, like, need versus want moment. She picks her need over her want. It's super appropriate given the, like, Disney musical kind of vibe that a lot of the run has. Like, yeah, you gotta have that. If she doesn't get an I want song, we need the want first need. Yeah. That was a really clever way of changing it. Poppy's I want song. It's like, I want you all to get the fuck out of my face. Yep. <laughs> I want to be where the people aren't. <laughs> I want to hear pure silence. <laughs> Silver, did you have any more questions? No, most of these were my questions, so okay. <laughs> I don't think I have any more. Well, I guess, Silver, I have a couple questions for you since you've been with the story for a few months now. Having to read it. Turning the tables on the interview. (laughs) So, Silver, when you were kind of like preparing to read, I'm just kind of curious if there were any chapters that you found kind of challenging to read or if there are any that you kind of had to prep yourself for, like delivery-wise. Well, the first really challenging chapter, I think for me, was the one where Tribs dies because I was like, this is a super emotional chapter. It's very sad. Like, Poppy is distraught. And I was like, that is a lot to have to portray. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I read it several times and I kind of just tried to make myself really sad before I started. Mostly by just, like, reading it and, like, getting into it, which it's sad enough on its own. So that's, like, all you really need. So, like, going into that, it felt challenging, as well as, like, the next chapter, 
The next chapter was like Poppy's low point where she gets kicked off from the team or not kicked off, but like banished. And so that was also just anything that like had a lot of emotion to it. I was nervous about and tried to get myself in the right mood to not have to try to act too much. Yeah, I think especially acting sad, it can be really easy to go like so melodramatic that it's not effective. And I think you really hit that good sweet spot of making it sad, but it's not overacted. That's good. I was worried too about that. So. Super good. Was so stoked. In particular, there was that one bit. I think it was the opening of chapter seven where we had that technical sort of question to um, fill in from the editing side. Mm, yeah, with the pause. Yeah, yeah, with the pause. And I would have listened to Silver's delivery of that over and over again while I was thinking through everything. And oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spent the next half hour feeling desperately needy myself as a result. I think I, that was one episode I listened to in the car. My husband was driving and I was like, you have to listen to my writing because you never read it. So you're going to listen to it. <laughs> and <laughs> and I had him, I listened to chapter seven, which is, you know, right smack in the middle of the story. And I'm like, what did you think? And he said, I have no idea what's going on, but that person read it really well. <laughs> oh, that was the chapter where I um, made myself cry. Aww. So, just for fun fact. That's not a fun fact. <laughs> Silver. That's a sad fact. You can't see it, but I'm giving you air hugs over the internet. Aw, thank you. I'm returning them. Yay. Little pets. Aw. I'm looking at my microphone with some affection. It's a substitute for action that's very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again to Glance, Silver, and Flop for joining us in talking about Grassadia. Later on in the episode, we'll return as we look back one more time on the first season of The Writer's Lock. Now we move on to the second part of our Halloween anthology. When a trainer's Pokemon disappears in a blizzard not far from Snowpoint City, a friendly gym leader guides them to the Snowpoint Temple in the hopes of saving the creature. Will the trainer be able to save their Pokemon? Or should that even be their goal? Silverdoe is about to lead us on a trip into... The Frozen Temple. The Frozen Temple by Silver Doe. By mid-morning, the sun had risen high enough that its glare reflecting off the snow made it difficult to see. Candace slipped on her sunglasses but abandoned her watch. Ella would tell her when she'd found someone. Instead, she turned towards her companion, sinking down to sit cross-legged in the snow. Her Obama snow looked down at her and waved an arm in question. She shook her head and fell backwards. The snow formed a cushion under her head, but it was too soft. This was the most boring part, having to just wait and wait until Ella finally came back with a target if she found one at all. The last two days had been busts. But maybe today they would get lucky. They had to. She had meetings and battles scheduled nonstop all the way until next week. They had to find someone today. Candace closed her eyes and sent out a prayer. And then her god answered with a soft pop and Obama Snow's grunt. Candace rolled to her feet. Ella hovered beside her, barely visible in the blinding light, her form even harder to grasp thanks to the sunglasses. The psychic's ice-blue eyes, however, were clear as the day. You got someone? 
Candace's pulse began to race. Ellen nodded. She lifted an arm and pointed. Following the gesture, Candace spotted the two dots far below. One was a burgundy color, and the other shorter one, a light orange. Perfect. Candace grinned and whirled to face Obama Snow. It's blizzard time. Obama Snow stepped up beside her and lifted his arms. The air around them turned icy. Candace whipped off her sunglasses as the wind howled. Ella disappeared to do her job, and Candace watched with Obama Snow as their blizzard grew and grew, spreading out to cover the entire route, as much of it as she could see anyway. Clouds formed overhead, the day turning dark. Candace rocked on the balls of her feet and pulled a pokeball from her belt, tossing it in the air. Her frost laugh let out a chime as she materialized. Almost time, Candace told Frostlass, who swayed in response. Seconds stretched into minutes that seemed to go on and on forever, but then, at last, there were two more soft pops and Ella reappeared, and with her, an Infernape. Candace didn't need to tell her Pokémon what to do. They'd played this game many times. Obama Snow's grass whistle hit its target, and Frostlass's psychic lifted the sleeping fire-type into the air. Ella was already floating on ahead, and Frostlass followed with her burden. Candace accompanied them to the outskirts of the city until they were in range of the temple, and Ella could teleport the Infernape inside. That part wasn't particularly exciting either, but it was necessary for them to get to the really fun part. So Candace didn't mind, even though it felt like going through the motions, especially when she and Obama Snow chanced upon the trainer coming back from their morning hike after having to take shelter from that terrible surprise blizzard and carrying her all the way to the hospital. Having to wait again would have been as boring as the first time. But luckily Candace got to do a few gym battles that afternoon, so the time didn't drag by too much. When her last battle ended and she sent off the loser with a few words of encouragement, Don't give up! Hard work and you can try again soon! The sun had already sunk out of sight below the trees surrounding Snow Point. Candace's trip to the hospital was lit mostly by streetlights. It wasn't winter yet. Days were growing shorter. That was fine. Gave her more time to play. The hospital staff were pleased to see her. The doctor told her all about the patient's progress, including how lucky it was that Candace found her when she did, but fortunately the patient would be fine after a night's bed rest. They'd found her license in her bag. Tessa Fields came from Twin Leaf Town and had six badges. Unsurprising. Most trainers saved Snow Point for later in their challenge. Candace nodded along, feigning surprise and relief where appropriate, but she paid little attention to the rest. Her request to stay the night and make sure the trainer would be fine was, of course, granted. She wanted to meet the trainer she'd saved, who would soon be challenging her. It was only natural. Midnight had come and gone before Tessa Fields opened her eyes. Slouched in a chair near the bed, Candace pretended to be absorbed in her phone until she saw enough movement to glance up and give a start. Oh, you're awake! Who are you? Tessa pushed herself up, her eyes darting around the room. She had woken up once before, Candace remembered the doctor saying they'd had to put her back to sleep. She offered Tessa a wide smile. I'm the one who found you out in the snow. 
came by and stuck around to see how you were. I'm so glad you're okay. You found me? It made sense the trainer was confused. She'd only just woken up. Candace nodded pleasantly. Yep, after the blizzard this morning. Brought you here. She kept her expression neutral, but waited, her heart racing. The question was coming. The doctor mentioned she had been panicked. Tessa shifted on the bed, glanced around the room, and then it struck her. What about Jack? My Infernape, he was with me. He wouldn't have gone far. Did you see him? Confusion gave way to panic, and Candace adopted a puzzled expression. Slowly, she shook her head. I didn't see any Pokemon in it. Definitely not an Infernape. She watched as Tessa's hope vanished, a candle flame winking out of existence, and felt a twinge of some distant sadness inside her. She ignored it. Your name's Tessa, right? Yeah. The response came automatically, but Candace could tell Tessa's thoughts were elsewhere. She dropped her next line anyway. I'm Candace. Tessa turned her head frowning. Candace? Like the Snowpoint gym leader? Candace smiled again and nodded. Yep, that's me. The spark of hope came back. Candace watched it re-enter Tessa's face and heard it in her voice as she asked, If you're the gym leader, can you get them to let me go? Jack's out there somewhere and I have to find him. Now Candace frowned. Maybe. I could get you out of here anyway, but are you sure he's even out there? What do you mean? Tessa pushed the blankets off her. Her eyes went to the backpack sitting on a table by the window. Of course he is. Where else would he be? Candace leaned forward in the chair, resting her arms on her knees. The doctor said you said he disappeared. Like he was teleported. He... I, I was... It was probably just the blizzard. Tessa bit her lip and looked away, no longer willing to make eye contact. I... It, it was confusing and cold and... You're the only one who knows what you saw, Candace interrupted. And then she threw a glance at the door, which stood partly open. She lowered her voice. But the thing is, it wouldn't be the first time it happened. Tessa's eyes widened. Well, what do you mean? Again, Candace glanced at the door as she moved her chair closer to the bed. I mean, you're not the first trainer to say their Pokemon disappeared in a blizzard. Some others described it like teleportation, too. Tessa opened her mouth and closed it several times, and Candace figured she was just struggling to come up with a response. So she kept going. There are stories, but they're just rumors, and you probably wouldn't believe it anyway. Candace let her voice trail off. She didn't have to wait long for Tessa to take the bait. Tell me. Okay, if you're sure. Candace shifted to the edge of her seat. There's this old temple north of the city. History says it was an ancient site of worship for Regigius, but legend says it was actually a prison. Apparently there was some cult causing trouble, and so everyone else got together and sealed Regigius' soul away in the deepest part of the temple, trapping it there for eternity. Candace watched Tessa's face as she spoke, alert for any sign that she might need a plan B. But the cult had
hadn't actually died out. And years later, a group found a way into the temple and learned it was possible to free Regigius by sacrificing souls to the prison. They started luring trainers Pokemon to the temple. The amount needed to free Regigius was huge, and they weren't able to finish before getting caught. The cult died out for a while, but in time it returned and went back to sacrificing souls. That cycle repeated several times, until about 60 years ago when the cult was finally wiped out. No one who's gone beyond the first room in the temple has ever come out, and so it's generally kept sealed off. Most people think the story of Regigius being imprisoned there is a myth. Candace stopped her story to take a deep breath. Tessa was spooked, she could tell, but also confused. What does this have to do with Jack? Candace dropped her voice into a hushed whisper for the next part. The thing is, the cult might not have been wiped out 60 years ago. One of them was a psychic. A woman named Ella Green. Because no one would go into the temple willingly, her strategy was to just get them near it, and then teleport them inside, and trap them there. When all the rest of the cultists were caught, she wasn't. No one ever saw her again. Except for the trainers. What trainers? Tessa latched onto that detail, just as Candace hoped she would. The ones whose Pokemon disappeared. Candace let out a sigh. <sighs> I talked to a couple it happened to a few years ago, and they both mentioned having seen a strange woman just before the blizzard. A woman with dark hair and purple eyes who was thin and tall and extremely pale. Just like Ella Green. Candace watched the effect of her words spread over Tessa and had to focus on keeping her expression serious and neutral. Tessa swallowed hard and said quietly, I saw a woman like that. She didn't say anything, but she was strange. Candace shook her head. I was afraid of that. I've seen a lot of blizzards in my time, and that one really didn't feel normal. Tessa's brow furrowed. You think she caused the blizzard? The doubt in her voice was easy to hear. Candace shrugged in response to it. You think it'd be hard? One thing this area doesn't lack is ice types. There are lots of normal blizzards. If there really is some kind of ancient magic down in that temple keeping Regigius trapped, conjuring up sudden blizzards doesn't seem like a challenge. But Tessa said, clearly struggling to figure out whether to believe Candace or not. We were nowhere near the temple. There's no way anyone could have teleported Jack there, and she'd have had to find us in the blizzard in the first place. Well, she's psychic, Candace pointed out. She could probably sense you. And anyway, you're missing the point. She was starting to get impatient. This explanation was taking longer than she'd meant. <sighs> Look, I can't explain to you exactly how it happened. I'm just telling you what I do now, and the fact that if you want to find your Infernape, you'd better be off checking out the temple before you go wander around Route 216 in the dark, especially since it's snowstorming out there right now. And the last part wasn't technically a lie. For all Candace knew, it could be storming. It stormed on that route about 80% of the time. 
She watched Tessa hesitate, still biting her lip. Time to get moving. She didn't want to wait around any longer. As the gym leader, I can send some search parties organized to sweep the route in search of your inferno. But it'll take a couple hours to get everything together and for the storm to end. What if I showed you the temple now? And you could take a look inside while I get things organized. If you don't want to go in farther, you don't have to, obviously. The several seconds it took Tessa to agree to the plan were the longest in Candace's life. The several minutes it took for her to dress and for them to sneak out of the hospital were even longer. Once they were outside, passing through alternating patches of street lamps and moonlight in the cold night air, time finally picked up the pace. Candace took the shortest route to the temple. By the time they made it, she felt invigorated again, but Tessa was shivering even in her burgundy coat. They stepped outside the temple's front doors. Tessa stared up at it with apprehension all over her face. Candace rested a hand on Tessa's shoulder and gave her a reassuring smile. You go on in. The gym's right there. She pointed to the sloped roof of the building directly to the south. I'll go get people to join our search party, and I'll meet you back here afterward, okay? Tessa didn't look happy, but she clearly wasn't going to argue with the gym leader, and so she nodded. Candace patted her shoulder, and then set off toward the gym, tossing a back in a bit over her shoulder. She didn't look back after that, and she didn't hear the temple doors open or close, but a thrill shot through her all the same, a chill deep inside waking her up. Candace didn't have to use the front doors to enter the temple. She slipped in the back. Judging by that, Ella would have had plenty of time to entice Tessa into exploring the temple further. After all, the trainer had to find her infernate. Inside the temple, Candace felt at home. Her blood flowed through her veins like ice, her skin giving off the same glow as the frozen walls around her. She ran across the sheets of ice that coated the floor, unafraid of falling. She raced through the corridors until she found the central room, the prison's heart, the cell of her god. More icicles hung from the ceiling of this room than any of the others. Blocks and pillars of ice jutted up from the floor, creating a maze. And at the center of that maze stood the largest block of all. So high it nearly touched the arched ceiling, so wide it stretched from wall to wall. And even then, her being inside had been trapped in a crouch, slumped forward with its arms awkwardly folded in around it. Six gemstones glowed under the ice, three pairs, red, blue, silver. Candace pressed a hand against the block of ice. I have another soul for you, she whispered. Between the gemstones, six red circles winked into existence, flaring bright before flashing back to black. Not far from her, the Infernape lay on the floor, still asleep. His trainer would be arriving any minute. Candace pressed the button of a Pokeball at her waist, and Frostlass materialized beside her. Frostlass floated closer to Jack, and then looked back at her. Candace nodded and moved forward. Frostlass wrapped her arms around Candace's neck, the ends flaring out to cloak Candace's shoulders. 
Ross' last hum, and Candace closed her eyes. She breathed in the temple around her. The ice had already entered her body, and the magic began to stir, but now she opened herself up to all of it. It woke up inside her and brought her back to life. Capturing the Infernape's soul was easy, his body vanishing as she transformed his essence into a vessel, into a flame, which she carefully set upon a small pillar of ice near their god. Then all she had to do was fade back and wait. But this time the waiting wasn't a bore. The spirits in the ice whispered all around her, talking of the teenager walking through the corridors, calling out for a jack, telling Candace she was close. Candace couldn't give herself to the ice entirely to meld in with the others and watch the entire temple at once. But by listening with them, she could almost see with them. When Tessa at last stepped hesitantly into the chamber, Candace nearly burst out laughing, but she managed to contain herself. It wasn't time for that yet, just a little longer to keep up the act. She kept waiting while Tessa made her way through the room until she reached the single flame, and kept waiting while Tessa looked slowly past it at the form of the god frozen in the ice before her. And Candace stepped out behind her. Tessa! The trainer whirled around with a small yell. What? Candace? There you are. Candace walked up to join Tessa. She looked over the enormous block of ice and widened her eyes. It's real. She injected shock and awe into her voice, hopefully getting the balance right, although at this point it hardly mattered. That, that's ridiculous. Tessa shivered and wrapped her arms around her. She threw a nervous glance at the god and then looked back at the flame. I, she was here, the psychic. I saw her in the lobby and she said Jack was here and I tried to follow her and she led me here but disappeared right outside and I, I haven't seen Jack anywhere. Candace put on a frown and pretended to study the flame in front of them. The presence inside felt so strong to her, she wondered that Tessa didn't already know where her Infernape was. There are some carvings in the entrance hall. Did you see them when you came in? Yes, but I couldn't read them. Tessa's voice shook. They were really old language. I translated them once. Candace walked around the pillar to stand between it and Regigius facing Tessa. The spirits had gone quiet eager as she was. They say that fire is life, and within the frozen temple, neither can thrive. Bring one into the sun, and its light will bring new life. Candace let the words sink in. She could just tell Tessa what to do, but it was more fun when they figured it out for themselves. And sure enough, Tessa did. So, this flame, it, it, it's Jack. You think so? Candace feigned surprise. Does it feel like him to you? She almost cursed herself for asking the wrong question, but Tessa didn't seem to think it was strange. She just nodded. Yeah, it does. Then you should try to carry it out, Candace suggested. See if you can pick it up. Tessa seemed about to protest, but then she reached out her hands and placed them around the flame. When she lifted them, 
the flame stayed in her cupped hands. She held it close to her chest, and Candace resisted a grin. Come on, let's go. Candace crossed over to the entrance, waiting there for Tessa to catch up. Tessa moved much more slowly across the ice. Just don't let the flame go out, okay? Tessa bit her lip and looked down at it. This is crazy. Yeah, but look behind you. Candace pointed at the frozen Regigius, and Tessa swallowed hard again. Candace led the way back along the temple's corridors, dodging the hanging icicles and the occasional pillars of ice. The dark stone of the walls appeared musty beneath the layers of frost that coated them. There were no torches or windows placed on the walls, but the corridors still glowed with a silver light. Candace knew it wasn't natural lighting, but Tessa didn't appear to question it. Her eyes stayed mainly on the flame in her hands, and they had been walking for over five minutes before she finally looked around and stopped. Wait, this isn't the way I came. Are you sure you're going the right way? Time's up. Candace turned to face Tessa keeping her expression serious. That depends on where we're going. The, the exit, Tessa said, though she sounded uncertain as though confused by a trick question. Then no, it's not the right way. Finally letting the charade go, Candace grinned at Tessa, who took a step back. The thing is, the temple is hungry. Can't you hear it? From the way Tessa's eyes darted around, Candace knew she could, though for Tessa the spirits couldn't be more than murmuring at this point. Candace heard them clearly as they laughed with her. Candace stepped closer and Tessa backed up again, raising a hand to shield the flame. This time, Candace laughed aloud. <laughs> it's all true, you know. I'd never tell a lie. Flame is your infinite soul. And the moment it goes out, he'll be lost here forever. And it'll be your fault for failing to save him. Unless you can find your way out first. A few tears had frozen on Tessa's cheeks, and Candace relished the sight of them. She wasn't usually empathetic, but joined with the temple and its spirits, she could feel Tessa's fear clear as day, and it nourished her as it nourished them. Why? Why are you... You'd better run, Candace interrupted with a pointed look at the flame. Tessa looked down too, and before both their eyes it shrank, just a little. Several seconds passed, with Tessa seemingly frozen in indecision. The moment Candace lunged at her, Tessa whirled and fled, slipping and stumbling before she found her footing. And the chase is on. Candace could have overtaken Tessa easily, but she stayed on the other's heels, always staying in sight, just out of reach. As they ran, the voices clamored for her favor, begging her to tell them what she learned. And they were growing louder for Tessa, too, judging from her choked sobs and the way she looked wildly around at the walls. That was part of the fun and part of the process, and so Candace listened herself, drawing on the connection she'd formed with the soul resting in Tessa's hands. A meeting in the woods, between towns, the joy of being chosen first, and she fed the memory to the hungry spirits. 
Tessa had taken the wrong turn twice, but the right turn three times, and Candace wondered if she might actually make it out before the temple finished. Training hard all day, every day, but it was fun. They worked together, and she trained with them, and he got good at punching rocks, and after a while, each punch only made his fists feel stronger. He grew bigger and stronger, and together they took on the gym and won. She gave them the memory, and seconds later, Tessa's shoulders shook. But they were closer to the exit than she'd anticipated, and she had to hurry. He hadn't minded the others. They were good partners. The Luxray had been his friend from the beginning. The Biberel was unreliable outside of battle, but dependable in it. Not quite as dependable as the Nose Pass, but then none of them were. Maybe not even him. It helped to look after their trainer, though, and so he appreciated. Even the Jiraferig he got along with, though she mostly watched them all. But this newest one, all she did was cause trouble, and he helped her pick fights and wondered all the time why their trainer caught her. It wasn't like they needed a graveler, not with a nose pass, but he was sure she had her reasons. <sighs> the spirits devoured the memory. Their voices shrieks that made Tessa flinch and cry out. Flame was tiny now, Candace could barely glimpse it in Tessa's hands, but the Infernape's presence was stronger than ever, his rage useless as the spirits only drew on it further. And all this time, despite slipping and falling and then running more, Tessa had kept the flame close to her chest, breathing on it, breathing it in, and it soaked up her in return. Her memories blurred with the Infernapes, but Candace stopped listening. She didn't need to now, the process was nearly complete. All it needed was a final push. Candace whistled. Her frost lass, following close through the walls, joined her at once and already knew what to do. The shadow ball flew forward and struck Tessa square in the back just as she burst through the door into the entrance hall. Tessa fell with a thud that echoed through the hall. Candace caught up to Tessa before she could stand, but grasped the other trainer's elbow and pulled her to her feet. Tessa tried to twist away from her, but Candace held on tight and leaned in her breast, a mist that blended with Tessa's tears. You made it here faster than I thought, Candace told Tessa and tightened her grip. Let me go, Tessa demanded, sounding hoarse. Her hat had fallen off during the chase, and her dark hair was a mess. Large strands fallen in front of her eyes, but Candace still saw them dart down to check on the barely flickering flame hidden in her gloves. Please, please just let me go. Let me have Jack and I'll do anything, I swear. Candace released Tessa's elbow, but didn't move away. She studied Tessa's face with her eyes and Tessa's soul with her own. She found what she needed. Of course you can leave. You. And Jack. She saw the disbelieving hope in Tessa's eyes and smiled. She looked past Tessa. Ella waited there. The psychic's spirit didn't care for the chase as much as Candace did. Candace refocused on Tessa and rested a hand on her shoulder. But one day, you'll come back. Before Tessa could respond, probably before she could even come up with a question, she collapsed, the flame disappearing, returning to a Pokeball tucked in Tessa's pocket. Ella floated forward, raised her arms, and with a soft pop, Tessa vanished.
Candace sighed. That one didn't last long, she told Ella, trying not to sound too disappointed. She scuffed a shoe against the floor. The entrance hall was the only area of the temple not to be covered in frost and ice. The stone was too warm. The other spirits didn't like the entrance hall either, so it was too quiet as well. And now we'll have to wait even longer to do it again. Maybe it's time to come up with a new plan. The colossal one's slumber nears its end. Ella's voice echoed in her head. Candace nodded. Yeah, I know. She took a deep breath and grinned at Ella. We're two souls closer. We'll work on how to get the next ones later. Candace waved, though Ella was already fading away and left the temple. The sun hadn't risen yet, so she hung around the gym for a few hours until dawn finally came. At the hospital, she greeted the staff with a smile, explained she'd been called away the night before, and asked after the patient. When she walked into the room, she found both the patient and doctor there. The doctor introduced them, but apart from an initial wide-eyed stare, Tessa seemed reluctant to make eye contact with Candace. She wouldn't remember everything Candace knew, and what pieces she did recall she'd probably chalk up to a weird dream. It was what the others had done, though they were always uneasy around her afterwards, both drawn to her and afraid. Smiling both inside and out, Candace walked over to Tessa's bed and offered her hand. Tessa took it after a moment of hesitation. Her skin felt as cold to the touch as Candace's. So cold. It felt natural. It's nice to meet you, Candace told Tessa, before dropping her hand and stepping back. I'm glad you're okay. And hey, hope you get all better soon. Candace winked. I'm looking forward to your challenge. So the legends were true after all. The forces of darkness continued to grow stronger, hidden away in the cold and ominous Snowpoint Temple, with none the wiser. Who knows how long this cycle will continue, or indeed, how much longer it is needed. And now, for our final foray into the frightening, we pay a visit to Kanto. Blue Oak is a headstrong boy, and generally knows what he wants from life, and more importantly, what he plans to do to get there. The day he sets out on his Pokemon journey, though, things start to change. When he and his childhood friends pick their first Pokemon, something isn't quite right. To see off our final episode of the season, Payne brings us Leah. Payne has advised that this short story contains the following potential triggers, unreality, questioning sanity, and a general loss of free will or control. He can accept losing to Red. Red who'd been on track to the championship since four or five years old. Red, who had the advantage. Like, really, who'd expect a Charmander's claws to make a dent in a 50-year-old Squirtle shell? A loss to Red was a loss, but there was some pride to it. Or so Blues told himself for about three hours now, and he's close to buying it. 
The current battle is more like an obligation. He's got to make sure Bulbasaur is with someone who can actually fight. On the other hand, to hell with that pride and loss bullshit, he's actually winning this fight. Come on, boy, another scratch. You've almost got him, Blue calls. His nails dig into his palm, and he forces his breath steady again. It's just a baby battle, he thinks. Nothing exciting. But it is. The thrill of maybe actually being victorious this time. No, knowing he's going to win, he's got the advantage. Charmander is so much faster than the old Bulbasaur, sharp claws slicing through the thick leaves with ease, and Bulbasaur can't put up much of a fight anymore. Just one more hit now? One... One more? He can't see straight, his head light as air and buzzing like his ears are now. It's so close, so... Is victory supposed to be this dizzying? Was this how Red felt this morning? And it's like he's watching himself through a screen, snowy with static. He sees himself slipping, stumbling while standing, hands and tongue numb when he gives the command. Growl! As if it's what he's planned all along. To let Bulbasaur charge one final time. Barely a tap and it collapses afterwards anyway, on top of Charmander. Okay, scratch, got it? No growling, never growl. The lizard rakes his claws through Pidgey's fluff, harmlessly of course, nothing more than a few stray, ratty old feathers drifting away on the wind. He shouldn't be too hard on Charmander, Blue thinks. He's the trainer, after all. He gives the orders. Charmander just follows them. But still, to get so tripped up like that? Maybe it was just the first loss that did that. And they'd been doing fine since then. Nothing but victory upon victory, the flame on Charmander's tail burning brighter every time. And they weren't even at the first gym yet. Maybe that was it. Just train against wild Pokemon. Save the trainers for later, when his team could use actual attacks, right? Even with the addition to his team, it would still be a little while before they could do anything interesting. Definitely best to avoid all trainers. Like Mako, what in the hell is she doing here? The numbness comes again. Colour fading and static building in his fingertips, building in his mouth and legs and he's pushed ahead, towards where she's blundering through the grass and it's everything he has to push back against the rogue instinct. The guards in the checkpoint are nice, though. They just laugh and ask if he's seen a ghost, the way he's shivering. They don't mind him staying there, as long as he doesn't try going up the road. Pewter Jim isn't too bad, either. He doesn't feel that... static, not even once. And the guide gives him a handkerchief, once he's calmed down a little bit. He almost doesn't even mind the ringing in his ears. It's all just so... nice. The streak continues, through Mount Moon and Cerulean and even through another encounter with her. He's not even mad that he loses to her again on Nugget Bridge. That one's a fight he can actually be proud of, for both of them. Mostly himself, though, because he could resist it this time, that urge to pull useless attacks, to roll over and hand her defeat. 
but then they meet again on the SS Anne, and it's barely a fight. He simply has to accept it now. Even if she doesn't have the skill of red, she comes into these fights with a brute force he can't match. He can live with losing, as long as he's made the choices that lead to it. But he'd like to win at least once, damn it. Should we really be battling here? Aw, you scared of some ghosts? Blue laughs. Mako doesn't notice that he's looking everywhere in the room, except at her. The channel is battling here all the time. Now come on, you two chicken or what? So they battle, and he's ready. Sick to death of seeing Pikachu around, too. It wasn't enough that Red's earned a reputation for being stronger than any of those rats had any right to be. But he's got his strategy, he's going to win and be smart this time, open with... Charmeleon? Pidgeotto, who's left twitching and dazed after only one shock. He recalls her and tells himself he'll do it right this time, he'll send in his best. Except instead of a bright blaze, there's only vague candlelight reflecting off the parasect's dead eyes, off the shiny gem in the execute shell. He knows he should recall. And he does. Once executed still. He swears the mushroom is even larger, pulsating even. But it may just be a trick of the dim light, or the way his vision's going all swimmy again. It has to be now, just has to be. He fumbles with the Pokeball, registering its presence by the space at his hip rather than feeling it in his hands. He hesitates, and it's there again, sparks crackling along its tail and at its cheeks. Charmeleon can do this. He's almost a Charizard now. A Pikachu is nothing to... Such raw power. Yet the channelers don't even bat an eye as Gyarados rears up, crown scraping the ceiling overhead. He can work with this. Just... just bite it. Nothing else, just... He thinks he continues speaking. He's not certain, but he sees Pikachu's flagging. Even after a potion or two, it can barely stand upright. He can do it. Even if Gyarados slumps and pants, he has speed on his side for once. Just one more and her team is already weak. He can win. He can finally come out on top. And he hears it. The word pushes through the ringing that's more a buzz now crackling and filling his head up so he can barely think. Here's Lear, and the tiny static crackle afterwards. The heavy thud as some hundreds of pounds of scale meets stone. He doesn't even think to give orders to Kadabra. He just accepts Venusaur's appearance, and that it will defeat his Charmeleon. She leaves, and he stands under a torch. Why? He asks, out loud, only in his mind. He can't hear right, can't feel. Everything's swallowed in a buzzing grey haze. Why? A whisper that might be his own echo, except even if he'd spoken, he hadn't been laughing, and the echo does. The channelers do. Laughter that crackles through the air like an old TV or badly tuned radio, cackling and bouncing off the walls, tearing through the haze with, You're not the hero here, kid. Never were, won't ever be. You're just an obstacle for them, even if you think you know better.
I'll make sure you don't. And the room is gone. His hands, his pokeballs, nothing but grey and grey, a million trillion tiny points in a face in a form that grins and laughs even as he screams. And the story ends there. With no control over his choices, Blue can only watch as his pride is crushed, as he is forever defeated by his rival time and again, over and over. Perhaps forever. To wrap up our season finale, we now return to our discussion with Glance Sherlock, in which we reflect on season one of the writer's lock as a whole. Once again, we're also joined by Silverdo and Flop. I was great to be here. This was really fun. It was also just fun, like, listening to every episode come out, like, every three weeks, just because, I don't know, especially, like, some of the story locks that you guys featured were ones that, like, I've been familiar with, or I haven't heard before, or I've, like, known about for a while, and it was just really cool, because this is such a unique and very passionate community, and I think, like, this sort of podcast could only be produced by a community with that level of passion. So, mm, yeah. I don't know. It was just really cool to, like, see you guys tackle this project and see it to fruition and produce 10 episodes, which is not easy. <laughs> I, like, I, I've been in your position. I don't envy your job at all. I think we've done pretty well for ourselves. Yeah, and I, I learned, think you have, yeah. Like, we learned a ton from the previous attempt at the podcast as well. Like, if I hadn't kind of been there on the inside of that as well, I think I would have gone down a lot of really similar paths. So, oh, that sounds so shit. I mean that in a really good way. Um, it was... No, 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 I totally understand. <laughs> it it kind of, like, did feel like a, tr- like a trial run yeah. of, like, a podcast. And, no, I'm really glad that I crawled so you guys could run. <laughs> What happened was, like, I got a really good understanding of, like, maybe radio play type content is going to be a season two thing. Mm-hmm. You know, let's limit the format in all these ways. Let's get more people involved. It's all things like that that I think were really, really helpful. And that's how we managed to get here, like, with a lot of spit and elbow grease as well. But also your smarts. No. I know I've learned a lot being the I host. was going to say, yeah, I guess Rainy helped. She's all right. <laughs> oh, no. Don't you dare. <laughs> I worked very hard. Excuse you did. (laughs) I will be excused. (laughs) And I definitely appreciate all our readers. Just silver. Oh my God. Everyone did such a fantastic job. It just, the stuff that comes out of this community just astonishes me all the time. This is a good spot. This is a good place. Yeah. Yeah, Some of the reads are just socks. Status knocked right the heck off. When I did, like, I sort of put out auditions, I was just kind of thinking, not necessarily of delivery, because I just wanted to make sure that people were able to meet the technical requirements of being able to give decent audio for a podcast. Mm -hmm. But what we got was just amazing. (laughs) I'm so stoked. I'm so continually stoked. Mm -hmm. No, everything sounded just really, really good. Like, a lot of crisp audio came out of this podcast, which was for an independent project when everyone's like just working around the globe purely over the internet that's really hard to do because you don't have consistent equipment across the board that's part in due to like my end trying to make sure there's a sort of standard of audio to meet advising people but 70 80 percent it's cj she's a uh, sound tech i believe like theater sound theater lighting and so to have someone who was interested in and had the capability of mixing in a professional context was just Mm, so oh, that's good. awesome yeah 
Oh man, and the music that we got as well. Like Rainy from the people that you solicited, like for art and music. Yeah, luckily I've got some good friends. <laughs> and ah, oh, Sea Maid coming through with the little jingles between readings. I know, They're right? So good. I listen to them like anew when I'm putting together like the playlist things and little bits and bobs that I do, and they're just perfect. I'm so happy. They really are. <laughs> Uh, I think we'll wrap up. Yeah. Unless, Silver, have you got any last words? Just that this has been really great to do. And I loved reading Poppy's story and just helping with the podcast in general. It's been a huge learning experience and a lot of fun. And Gracidia remains one of my favorite stories. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you had fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. Silver, you just absolutely knocked out of the park with this reading. I'm really honored that Grisidia was picked to kind of be the consistent story throughout this first season and that you guys tolerate me enough to bring me on for, oh. <laughs> for this last episode. <laughs> tolerate. Tolerate. Me and Flop were completely in sync on that. Okay, okay. You're on the podcast server. Don't search your name because it's me freaking out. Like, oh, Glance is so cool. And oh, go talk to Glance. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. Well, I'm going to do it now. Uh, oh, awful. <laughs> I'm a fool. All right, all right. Let's wrap up. Let's wrap up. Take me out the door, please. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Glance, for joining us. Thank Uh, you. Also, Flop and Silverdoe, I really appreciated your input on this interview. Uh, So, yes, this will be our last episode for season one. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening and to all our contributors. It's been a journey. (laughs) And hopefully we'll be back for season two. Season 2, 2021, baby, let's go. Wee! Yay! (laughs) Hopefully we'll have a few new ideas and some new readers, some new stories, a new host. (laughs) (laughs) No, you can't get out of it that easy. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) All right. Thanks, everyone, again. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 We'd like to say thanks one more time to Glance, Silver and Flop for joining us today, as well as all of our discussion segment guests for this season for sharing with us a wide range of viewpoints and opinions. As always, we'd like to thank our readers, Radoff, CJ Apples and Chithulu. Our editors, CJ Apples and Song With No Soul, our producer Flop and the rest of the Writer's Lock crew for bringing this project to life. Without all your efforts, we never would have been able to put this season together. And of course, another thanks to Gamaliel for our theme music, C-Made for arranging our jingles, and Nazimba for the wonderful cover art. And last, but not least, we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning into the Writer's Lock all season long. We hope you've enjoyed listening to a selection of stories from the Nazlock community, and we look forward to continuing to do so in Season 2. From the very bottom of our hearts, thank you all for listening. We'll be back in the new year with another round of readings and discussions. This has been The Writer's Lock. Stay safe, everyone.